like the eternal city that is Rome, where the ecclesiastical splendor of the Renaissance completely enthralls the imagination. The dome of St. Peter's rises upwards like a heavenly choir. From the topmost pinnacle, the centuries that are Rome spread out in everlasting significance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this roundtable. We'll be discussing natural theology and the divine attributes. So um, welcome to the show, everyone. It's good to have you all here. Um, How's it going, man? Uh, do you all want to say a little bit about yourselves or just uh, get right into it? I guess I guess we can get right into it. I mean, everybody kind of yeah. already knows who Hassan is. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't want to like. Uh, I, I don't want to make it like too. You know, stuffy. Just kind of want to yeah. play it loosey goosey. You know, no time to waste. All right. Natural theology. Um, so, what is natural theology? Yeah. So, when when it comes to this question, I I, I think honestly this is going to be the most important question. Uh, going right into it. And it's not just because defining terms is always important. It's because uh, there, there's a, I guess, an aura of 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 um, negativity surrounding the term that comes from certain corners uh, that would like to, uh, especially orthodoxy. I mean, um, and then and then also a term a term like natural theology. Like, come on, what are you what are you some uh, some rationalist? So there, there's always there's always a sort of uh, negative gloom uh, surrounding the term natural theology. So so we have to really nail down exactly what we're talking about. So uh, natural theology, uh, everybody uh, can kind of imagine the the sort of etymology or the or, or the the origin of the word behind it. It comes from God study or or a word about God, some sort of study uh, surrounding God, and then natural is going to refer to uh, the the principle uh, whereby we we acquire that knowledge about God, which is going to not be from uh, special revelation, but it's going to be from Scripture. So when it comes to the the, the sort of place of natural theology uh, within philosophy, it's going to be uh, a subset of metaphysics. So metaphysics is the study of being. And then uh, natural theology is going to be the study of the first cause of being, which is going to be God. So uh, it, it's it's different from um, sacred theology, which goes off of Revelation. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's uh, just generally uh, phased right in there with, with metaphysics to kind of get our uh, traction right there. Yeah. So um, what's the importance of it? Why should we learn about it? Any takers? Um, well, one reason is that it's valuable for the task of apologetics. Um, mm -hmm. You can appeal to uh, natural reason to establish uh, the preambles of uh, faith, uh, so the, the existence of God, the possibility of miracles, the possibility of divine revelation, um, things of that nature. Um, so it's valuable there. Um, <clears throat> with that being said, there are limitations um, and so, like Christian was just saying, you know, some people think of rationalism when they think of natural theology. Um, so, for instance, 
we can't prove that God is a trinity by natural reason. That's something that has to be revealed to us. Um, you can give plausibility arguments, um, but they're kind of ex post facto, kind of like, well, okay, it actually does make sense that God will be multipersonal because uh, you think of like uh, you know, a perfect expression of love is kind of other oriented. And so if God's multipersonal, then he can just essentially have that other oriented love. But even there, that doesn't get you to, he's specifically tri-personal. Um, so that, that's, that's where we have to pull back away from rationalism, where we don't say that we can demonstrate all of the articles of faith with natural theology, but we can demonstrate the preambles of faith and we can demonstrate that um, uh, divine revelation is, is credible. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess that I'll, I'll hand it off to someone else from there. Yeah, there's also, I, I think, and I think St. Anselm was actually the, the perfect example for this, but there's also a value to the contemplation uh, when it comes to uh, specifically the believer contemplating the arguments for the existence of God. Uh, I, I, I take the view, uh, according with uh, Gilson, which uh, if you know anything about me, it's crazy that I'm agreeing with Gilson, uh, but that... When it comes to St. Anselm's argument that he's actually not uh, presenting something which would be used in an apologetic situation, but actually something uh, that is oriented towards contemplation. The fact that in contemplating the, uh, the arguments for the existence of God, which is just one part of natural theology, uh, to, to make that perfectly clear, um, that, in, that in contemplating those arguments for the existence of God, uh, we are able to... Uh, we are able to gain some sort of fruit uh, from it as Catholics who already uh, by faith uh, believe that um, believe in the existence of God in that uh, according to uh, his nature as a uh, redeemer of uh, mankind and giver of grace. Yeah. So um, what was the origin of natural theology? When did it come about? St. Anselm? Yeah, well, uh, the, the the history behind it's actually kind of fun, and I actually did a little bit of uh, of study into this. So you have um, really the the first sort of thinking about God uh, under its natural aspect, which obviously the those who originated it wouldn't have thought like that. Would have been the the poets uh, of of ancient Greece. They kind of um, that, that's the, those are the first people who were called theologians. Uh, sort mm -hmm. of oracles and poets and, and, and such. And then you get to the time of Aristotle. If, if you read Aristotle's metaphysics and his physics, uh, he, he is starting to uh, speculatively consider a uh, God in that, he, uh, insofar as uh, he is the uh, causer of being, uh, if you want to, if you want to put it like that in its most general aspect. And then throughout the, early church, you had this uh, distinction between what's called theology and economy. Uh, you'll get this brought up in orthodox circles a bit. Uh, you can still hear about this. Uh, but the distinction between economy and theology is going to be the consideration of God uh, as he is in himself, and then the consideration of God uh, as he is, um, as he is the working outside of himself for the redemption of mankind. That's the distinction you'll get. But the the sort of hard and fast distinction uh, between natural theology and sacred theology, uh, it, it, this doesn't come around. If memory serves me right, it's about the, the time of Richard of St. Victor um, is, is when you start to get this 
understanding uh, being developed. And then by the time of St. Thomas Aquinas, it's very clear uh, where the, the lines are drawn uh, when it comes to knowing God under the aspect of being versus knowing God under the, the intimate aspect of himself, which is going to be uh, sacred theology, which is working not under the natural light of reason, but under uh, revelation. Mm-hmm. So um, where do we go from there? How do we dig deeper into the topic? <clears throat> yeah, I guess we can kind of uh, discuss how the, uh, the the various different parts of uh, natural theology. So first, you're going to cover the existence of God. Uh, and then in the, the second part, broadly speaking, you're going to talk about the essence and attributes, which is going to be uh, within the attributes, you're going to cover the um, what, what are called the entitative attributes. Like you can think of um, your, your whiteness or your your humanity; uh, those are entitative attributes. And then uh, you have the what what John of Saint Thomas calls the attributes of passive knowability, um, which is, is going to be the knowing and naming of God. And then on well, the third uh, place, you have um, what's called the operative attributes, which are going to be attributes which are ordered uh, outwards uh, towards operation. So I guess uh, all, all I'm meaning to say there is I guess we can just kind of start with uh, the existence of God, broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that, Colin or Hassan? The existence of God. Proven by natural theology. I think Hassan said that he had uh, something about Romans 1. Yeah, go ahead with it. Yeah, so... Romans the... 120. Right. Uh, so the Romans 120 uh, passage, um, uh, with respect to what Christian just said, uh, St. Paul is mostly going to be talking about it from a moral perspective and not just this, this epistemic perspective. He's going to be talking about how um, it was possible and some actually did uh, know the existence of God from the things which have been made. Um and the important thing about this uh, important thing about this passage is uh, uh, is that he wants to then talk about the concept of ignorance and how it um, how it renders a non-action uh, inculpable. Then he wants he wants to say that we shouldn't deceive ourselves by pretending that this ignorance is as extensive as it is. And uh, he also wants to talk about how these things which should have been causes for glorifying and adoring God um, became use ways to instrumentalize him and to worship the created that signifies rather than the creator signified. Um, and that's gonna that's gonna lead into some other stuff that maybe I'll talk about later. Yeah. So I have the I have the verse right there going across the screen. Um, Forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Though everything God made, they can clearly see uh, through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. Um, so how can people uh, see his invisible qualities? Um, or how could the ancients see God's invisible qualities by nature? Good question. So um, there's something that um, St. Augustine is going to reference from uh, the first chapter of the book of Sirach. And he's going to say, wisdom was created before all things, certainly not the wisdom that was clearly co-eternal and equal to you, O Father, and by whom all things were created, 
John 1, 3, in whom as the beginning you created the heavens and the earth. Rather, truly, it was the wisdom that has been created, namely the intellectual nature that in the contemplation of light is light. For this is called wisdom, although it is created, but as great as the difference is between the light which enlightens and that which is enlightened. For with you is the fountain of life in your light. Do we see light? That's Psalm 36. So great is the difference between the wisdom that creates and that which has been created. It is just as great as the difference between the righteousness that justifies and the righteousness that has been made by justification. So, so this is uh, this is a very important passage, and it kind of shows the spiritual use of of these uh, of these doctrines. Yeah. So I think I think this actually kind of leads us into the. The first question that's traditionally brought up uh, when it comes to the discussion of the existence of God, because you asked, you asked about like through what, how, I mean, how do we, how do we go, and how did the ancients uh, know about God? And this, this gets uh, there. There's sort of three questions that are usually uh, asked. On the one hand, you have um, the 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 sort of uh, way that way that Thomas just do theologies. You have way um, a certain side that's uh, defect by excess. And then you have one that's uh, defect by lack. And then you have the golden mean that arises uh, above the two sides. So first we, we, we ask about um, ontologism. And then on the other side, we ask about uh, agnosticism. So on the one side, ask about uh, ontologism. We ask, okay, how, how does um, the argument for the existence of God really work? Is it something which is a priori or is it something which is uh, a posteriori? So is it something which is um, grasps, grasped immediately from the terms? So by the um, just by the judgment God exists, I can grasp the fact uh, that God exists? Or is it something that requires uh, what's called a uh, middle term, a demonstrative middle, that I'm going to have to, um, from, from a certain uh, reasoning from effect to cause, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to draw forth uh, knowledge, uh, an argument for the existence of God. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, that and in the ways uh, that the that the Thomas uh, end up um, is is arguing that yes, we need to um, we need to argue uh, from creation uh, to the Creator. That is arguing from proper effects uh, to proper uh, causes, and uh, th- this sort of takes place um, in in every uh, human being in a not intuitive, but a, uh, I guess we could say natural way, um, that it is, it is natural for man to gaze upon uh, creation around him and to have this uh, almost quasi-intuitive reflex uh, response that there must be uh, a god. Uh, Sheban writes about this uh, at length. I wish I had the, the quote in front of me. It's pretty good. Yeah. But uh, really what all, all we're doing in natural theology is we're taking that reflex right there and then we're we're putting it uh and i mean this is kind of all um of peripatetic uh philosophy generally uh broadly speaking uh we we take that sort of common sense uh reflex of of man and then we put it in in uh in a sort of systematic form we we synthesize uh really common sense into uh a a philosophical system so that's really all that uh, all that natural theology does is it takes that um, reflex response and in states in technical terms. 
Yeah. Um, to switch directions, I guess, what does the church currently teach about natural theology? Um, wasn't there a pope that affirmed it, that it's a, a way to know God? Yeah. Um, if, if, if anybody else wanted to uh, kind of, I'm sure everybody knows about uh, Vatican I here and can uh, explain that. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so um, uh, the first Vatican Council has uh, in De Filius, uh, the anathema, if anyone says that the one true God or creator and Lord cannot be known with certainty by the natural light of human reason through the things which have been made, let him be anathema. And then um, Pope St. Pius X in the anti-modernist oath uh, states, God, the beginning and end of all things can be known with certainty by the natural light of reason as a cause is known by its effects from those things that are made that is by the visible works of creation and can be equally demonstrated to be. Um, and uh, Ludwig Ott assigns the theological note of Sententia Fidei Proxima to that statement from Pius uh, X. Mm -hmm. um, so we get one, uh, natural theology is in principle successful. I mean, the, the church, at least to my knowledge, has not officially endorsed any specific argument, but the idea that the general project of natural theology is in principle successful is taught by the church. Um, and then in particular, um, a kind of cosmological argument from causality, that general kind of strategy is uh, in principle successful as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that. And, and honestly, that that makes uh, that's that sort of uh, makes sense, because for, for a little bit of um, historical background to to what was going on there um, mm -hmm. in the 19th century, I mean, we all kind of. Uh, I mean, everybody watching, I'm sure, knows and have heard and has heard of modernism. But modernism really was um, a sort of synthesizing project uh, with some continental uh, uh, philosophers in order to uh, make this quite terrible uh, mixture between Catholicism and uh, the philosophy of the day. Uh, it turned out quite badly. But yeah, when, when it comes to the existence of God... Um, there, there were certain philosophers who would say that uh, we actually can't um, can't know uh, God from the light of natural reason. Uh, they would be, uh, I'm sure everybody's heard of the term agnostic, and, and that that is really what's being uh, condemned here. And weirdly enough, uh, when it when it comes to uh, modern Eastern Orthodox uh, the online figures, they they've somehow uh, stumbled into. Um, those condemnations, which I don't, I don't really know how uh, that works, but I, I think, um, but really my, uh, my intuition uh, right now is that they, they don't really understand uh, what the word uh, or the concept of natural theology is because uh, I mean, they still uh, will argue from reason um, at least man's subjective dependence uh, upon God in our uh, in our various experiences which uh would just be called a, a physical or a moral uh, argument by um some of the philosophical manuals so yeah it, it, it's sort of a weird uh history behind it how we have kind of um gotten back to the point of uh weird schizo online uh orthodox figures are somehow uh replicating uh 19th century modernists who are replicating earlier uh, continental philosophers so uh, who who are also themselves replicating uh, some weird uh, medieval uh, agnostics. So I don't know how we get here, but uh, we get here. yeah. 
So uh, who are some of those main philosophers, the agnostic philosophers that reject um, the, theology? So, so the main, uh, and it, I'm, I'm still, I'm still unconvinced uh, when it, when it comes to exactly how I, I think about uh, his thought on the subject. So maybe I probably shouldn't talk about it. But the the main target of criticism, the main source of inspiration, is going to be Immanuel Kant. Mm-hmm. And he uh, and his. Um, what is the book title? Uh, maybe one of you guys don't Critique the of one... Pure Reason? Well, yeah, it's the Critique of Pure Reason. Then he has the the one successful argument for the existence of God. So, something something super pretentious like that, like a typical uh, continental philosopher. The the only possible uh, argument ever for the existence of God. Like, okay, dude. <laughs> like, nice, nice job. Uh, great book title. Yes. I read, I read that. I remember reading that in high school and... Uh, and I thought I thought it was the the weirdest thing ever. Um, let me. Yeah. So, uh, what are some of the main arguments against uh, natural theology? Like, the biggest argument against it. Uh... Yeah. So, um, uh, here it is: the only possible argument in support of a demonstration of the existence of God. Yeah. Nice. Uh, nice pithy <laughs> title, dude. But yeah, what, when it comes to the the arguments. Um, against natural theology, really the basis they're going to have to target, there's two of them. The first one is going to be uh, what's called the ontological validity of our first principles. The second is going to be the transcendental validity of our first principles. So the ontological validity of our first principles, first principles would be things like the the law of non-contradiction. Because once you establish the law of non-contradiction, you're you're able... um, from that and then some of these some of these other first principles uh to to draw out uh certain attributes of being uh that would require the existence of god especially uh when uh our, our experience of of being that is contingent that is being that doesn't have its raison d'etre uh, within itself so that that would be the ontological validity of our first principles where um a lot of the kantians are going to say that it, it it doesn't have uh, our first principles don't have ontological validity they kind of have uh an a, uh, an experimental or experiential uh, validity is, yeah, we kind of act uh, just like they work. Uh, you know, technically, uh, we can't prove that uh, the law of non-contradiction is real. We just can't conceive of a contradiction, uh, that sort of thing. And then uh, from that, we also have uh, the transcendental validity of our first principles. So where we uh, provide a, a nice reductio ad absurdum for uh, the fact that you know, that that's kind of ridiculous to say that the law of non-contradiction isn't a law of being, that it's just a law of thought. Um, they will say, well, OK, let, let me let me just pretend that I will accept the ontological validity of our first principles. Well, you can't prove that that would uh, apply to God. That's actually, the uh, at least to me, the more interesting one, because I think most of the in, in your sort of common apologetic situations, most of the people you talk to uh, aren't prepared to to go to go full subjectivist uh, when, when they're interacting with the world, they're going to be like, okay, yeah, actually that, that tree over there does exist. And that tree is not a dog. Like I, I, I know that uh, I can kind of have these uh, basic intuitions when it comes to uh, first principles, but the transcendental uh, validity of our principles, which is the, uh, the ability to transcend um, not only created being, but also uh, uncreated being that's, that's a bit of the, the more interesting uh, objection. Yeah. Do y'all have anything to add to that, Colin or Son? Um, I could add one quick thing, which is just that you might also get a kind of distinctively theological objection to natural theology. Um, so certain uh, <clears throat> Calvinist circles 
uh, kind of in the Vantillian presuppositionalist camp, uh, will say that natural theology is not possible in a fallen state. Um, some will say, well, once you're regenerated by grace, then you, you could successfully reason in that way. But of course, if you're already regenerated, that doesn't have any value uh, apologetically. Right? You already have to be regenerated to uh, see the arguments of natural theology as being sound. That's not going to be apologetically valuable. Um, yeah. So that's going to kind of rely on the Calvinist doctrine of total depravity. And so answering that objection essentially just amounts to answering the total depravity. Yeah, those guys are those guys are fun, uh, especially especially Van Hill. Van Hill was a just as just as like background lore. Um, because I, I do come from a, a reform background and reform background where I had to deal with Vantillians. But Van Til, uh, if you read um, Keith Matheson's article, um, what was that called? Oh, Vantillianism in Christianity. Uh, yeah. It's quite a bombastic title. But yeah, if you read uh, Christianity and Vantillianism, uh, August 21st, 2019. But yeah, Van Til, he was, he was full schizo mode. Uh, crap, I don't, I can't send can't send comments but yeah he would he would say like oh god is uh, at the same time one person and three persons and one being and three beings it's like okay dude and he and he had some sort of weird uh theory of truth to where uh and, and th this kind of comes uh comes from some critiques of uh of some dutch reformed uh thinkers in the 19th century of thomas aquinas but uh they they would they would somehow think that in order to know the quiddity of something, so um, the essence uh, of something, you would need to know uh, somehow the, the coherence of that thing, uh, not only with other uh, beings around you, but its connections uh, with its final end and then also its first cause, which obviously uh, isn't true. Um, I can I can know the, 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 the quiddity of many things without uh, knowing certain proximate ends. And if those proximate ends change, uh, I still know what it is, and it doesn't uh, somehow destroy the essence of the thing. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, th that's going to be uh, really uh, along with uh, yes, uh, the the noetic effects of sin. Uh, that that's going to be another leg they stand on as a weird uh, definition of truth and and how we know truth. Yeah, I find Van Til really fascinating to read. Um, because he seems to vacillate a lot where it's like he's trying to avoid fideism while also trying to reject natural theology. And I actually don't think that can be done. Like he, he kind of contradicts himself all the time because he's trying to steer a middle course there. And I, I don't think it could be done. Yeah. I, I, I feel like <laughs> I remember actually um, when I, when I started my, my freshman year um, in undergrad and we were studying prolegomena, and we started discussing uh, some things about uh, fideism. I, I I just kind of looked up and it was rationalism, fideism, and then sort of the the traditional uh, Christian view because it was um, a, well, the traditional Reformed view uh, at least. And I remember uh, thinking about fideism, and I had been influenced a little bit. Uh, as I said, I was I was reading a bit of uh, of Kant when I was in when I was in high school. At least that one work, uh, which probably didn't do much for me. Um, and then also some some writings of Vantil and Bonson. And I saw fideism and I was like, you know, fideism, uh, that doesn't sound too bad. And then and then I come to realize, uh, at least through some arguments with my professors, that, yes, actually, fideism is, is pretty bad. 
I, I should say as well yeah. that not not all Calvinists are Vantillians. There there are natural theology supporting Calvinists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. When it when it comes to um, <clears throat> the the confessional uh, documents and the traditional theologians, uh, it's it's not Vantillian at all. Although, as as one of my professors uh, pointed out to me uh, when I was doing, uh, because I I, I study uh, in 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 grad school the uh, history of, of classical Protestant theology, that there, there has been this sort of thread uh, going back to the Reformation of, of weird sort of um, proto-Vantil leanings. And then there's also this other thread of like uh, what, what we would basically completely agree upon when it comes to uh, natural theology as Catholics. It's really uh, fascinating to look at this stuff. So um, we can go back a step. What's fideism? And you two want to yeah, answer? A simple answer, I guess. We, we don't have to spend too much time on that. Uh, I'll let Hassan go. He hasn't spoken in a little bit. Mm -hmm. If you want to go. Sure. Um, so fideism <laughs> is, is just going to amount to the view that we can only um, we can only come to know the existence of God uh, in any sense other than uh, naming something that we think is God. Uh, like St. Thomas says that the Samaritans did in his commentary on Matthew. Commentary on John, I bet. Yeah. Um, so, so he's going to say, he's going to say that um, basically like there are different ways of, of naming God and that one of these ways of naming God is naming something that you think is God, but it's not. Um, and he calls um, what some people have a, fanta a fantasia of, of God. Uh, but there's still a kind of indirect reference. Um, but the fideist is going to say that it's not possible without the infusion of faith to know something that is God rather than a fantasia in the mind. Um, and and we are gonna we are gonna reject this because of uh, basically the patristic teaching on the spiritual meaning of the water becoming one. So our natural knowledge of God is able to be elevated into something that gladdens the heart, like wine is supposed to gladden the heart of man. Um, so our kind of like, I guess, kind of like dry, like merely intellectually delighting uh, notion of, of what God is, uh, which can be true and not a fantasia, but really what God is, um, we're, we're just going to understand it as completely like unfulfilling in terms of the way that the gospel describes the elevation of man's soul and the bringing of uh, formerly things necessary for our sustenance and our general natural well-being, but not bringing gladness to us, not bringing delight to us. Uh, it would defeat the sort of basic message of the gospel if natural theology was impossible, because there would be nothing there would be nothing to bring spiritual delight. Uh, it would be the complete Yeah. So um, we won't spend too much time on natural theology, but if, are there any uh, routes that we didn't go down that y'all would like to quickly discuss? Any conclusions? God exists. <laughs> and that, that's a conclusion. We can end with that. Uh, we can take a brief intermission, um, intermission here, and we'll be right back. Um, two minutes.
And even after the Protestant Revolution, I like the term revolution. <laughs> I think that was two minutes. Was that a first video kind of loud? Yeah, it was a, it was a little bit loud. Uh, my ears definitely uh, <laughs> didn't explode, I promise. Yeah, I realized that once I started playing it. but Still uh, figuring things out, but uh, we'll start with that. Oh, <laughs> oh, you had to do them like that. It's the, I got the Michael Lawton. <laughs> That's what I was going for. Great, great, you're, dude, dude. You've already, you're, you're done now. You're already, you're already canceled. You're, 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 channel, you're not getting on reason down. theology now, man. You're done. <laughs> your, your channel, your channel's finished now. Well done. <laughs> my, There's my a reaction video coming. I know that was uncharitable and imprudential. <laughs> Very unnecessary. So, uh, I think that was a good refresher. Um. We'll jump right into the divine attributes. Um, so does anybody want to break down that term, divine attributes? I guess um, I guess I can uh, get into it a bit. So uh, introducing, I guess, that, that sort of second stage, uh, because a lot of times uh, it, it's difficult to bridge the two because we, we go and, and we prove the existence of God and then most people are just like oh okay uh, natural theology done let's just uh, let's just pack it home uh, pack it up go home nothing else to worry about but uh, that's not the case because there's uh, there's what's called a terminus uh, to an argument so the the terminus uh, to an argument is uh, that sort of formal aspect of a thing that is proved so when we uh, ascend up uh, through the through the five ways the first three proving the uh, the existence of God, the last two proving the perfection of God, the uh, specifically the fourth one is proving the uh, the perfection of God uh, by way of um, the entitative attributes, and the fifth uh, proving the perfection of God by the way of the uh, operative attributes. We have reached uh, this sort of point up here, and that point is the uh, is the judgment that God is. Um, Ipsum, ipsum esse per se subsistence. So what does that mean? That means that God is um, of himself. Um, he is subsistent uh, being, or he is uh, his, his a subsistent act of existence. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to uh, everything else in the world, everything else uh, from the highest angel to the lowest speck of dust is composed of essence and existence. So uh, they their existence is something which is contingent for them. So it's something uh, which is uh, not 
not necessary. So they could exist, they couldn't exist, they can go out of existence. But for God, God's very essence is his existence. So for God, he is uh, necessarily uh, existent. And from that principle right there, that God is uh, ipsum esse per se subsistence, we go from that high point, the terminus of the five ways, and then we kind of go on a downward slope. Uh, judging the rest of the way down uh, and drawing certain arguments from that high point right there. Because uh, if you think about it, if, you, uh, if, you'll, if you'll stick with me for a second, uh, when it comes to uh, being, being is something which is transcendental. That means being is something that everything uh, insofar as it exists uh, is and has being. Because uh, if something uh, were something other than being, uh, let's say if I if I said this this ground uh, black pepper can right here was being, uh, yet this screwdriver right here was not being, then uh, what would I be saying about the screwdriver if I said it was not being? What 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 is what is something which is non-being? It would, it would be something that doesn't exist, and therefore, how could I be predicating something to non-being? So everything. Uh, insofar as it is is being and um if you if you look at the uh if you look at uh certain things that are being in relation to something else so if you look at being in relation to the intellect that's truth being in relation to the will that's um goodness being in relation uh to another being it's called a thing uh being in relation to itself it's called unity you have uh, all of these uh, perfections of being. So God, uh, in making the judgment that he is ipsum esse per se subsistence, that uh, we, I, I will just say from now on subsistent being, in judging that God is subsistent being, we can also make the judgment that he doesn't only have that perfection of being, but he has everything that goes along with it. Mm -hmm. so how, many, how many perfections is a subsistent being going to have? Is is he? Uh, it, let's 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 think about it for a second. Actually, uh, this is something very important for uh, for Dionysian uh, theology. Uh, Divine names, uh, chapter four, I mean, uh, chapter five, especially Saint Thomas' lectures one through three are really good on this. So, when it comes to uh, perfection, oh, you do, <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic! You need to definitely read that. Um, you you will, yeah. you will be see, you will be contemplating the the divine essence <laughs> in no time. So when it comes to, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought right there. When it when it comes to when it comes to perfections, perfection uh, is the lack of lack, if we may put it, is it's the lack or or absence of entitative lack. So it's something which is a negative name. So. Everything out there, insofar as, as it has being, is going to be something which is perfect. Because if you say that there is a perfection, if you say that there's a perfection that is somehow outside of being or not included in being, then you're being dumb because then you're saying it doesn't exist. Again, uh, you're always gonna you're always gonna fall in that claptrap. That's gonna be St. Thomas's claptrap right there. Say there's something yeah. that uh, is not included uh, in a subsistent act of existence, and you're saying it doesn't exist, and therefore uh, it's an imperfection, and we're negating it of God. 
So uh, when we have verified that God is uh, ipsum esse per se subsistence, we are everything else that is a perfection, uh, since it is included uh, in being somehow, is going to be included in God. So when we when we gaze around us, uh, let's say I see, mm, what is what is something black pepper? Uh, yes, <laughs> I'll, I will use my black pepper can again. So we have this black pepper can uh, right here. Uh, this is a pretty beautiful black pepper can, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, I'll say it's a good black pepper can. Uh, it, it reasonably uh, seasons my food. I will not be using this black pepper can for the next 40 days, unfortunately. But uh, it, it has done me really good for these last few months. It's a good black pepper can. Uh, it is it is uh, being in relation to my uh, appetite. Um, so when I when I contemplate the the goodness of this black pepper can right here, uh, I I must uh, see. In the in when I consider the notion of goodness, uh, that it is something which is a is a pure perfection. So uh, goodness does not include any sort of lack in its notion. It's only because goodness is instantiated in this black pepper can because it's obviously this black pepper can isn't subsistent goodness or it would be God. Mm -hmm. um, the the lack that is present here isn't part of the notion because we've already established the notion of goodness is something which is. Um, something which doesn't include imperfection rather it's due to the mode so now uh we we can't say that this black pepper can uh is uh, essentially good that it's part of its essence because then it's uh goodness wouldn't be uh at all uh mutable uh, if i if i cut a hole in the side of this black pepper can it would be a it would be a less good black pepper can and therefore if it was part of the essence this black pepper can would go out of existence which is obviously not the case. So the the raison d'etre for the 